Welcome to The Pastor's Cut, a podcast of Park Community Church in Chicago. Every time a pastor prepares a sermon, there's all kinds of material that influences, shapes, and informs, but ultimately gets cut from the final preach. The Pastor's Cut is a chance to go behind the scenes and access that content that informs our teaching every week at Park. This week, we're on with Josh Laxton discussing what got cut from his sermon on Acts chapter 16. So let's get started. I'm your host, Trevor Lovell, and this is The Pastor's Cut with Josh Laxton. All right, Josh, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Trevor. It's uh, awesome to be here and to have been part of uh, the last few weekends at our community. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I really I've, uh, I meant to say this to you beforehand, but I wanted to kind of save it for here. But I've just really enjoyed your your preaching the past couple of weeks, um, especially the way that you kind of tie some of the different things. To, I, I like the way that you bring a research aspect into things, and uh, which I think shows that you, you've got this kind of background in pastoral ministry, but also uh, in this, you know, co-director of the Billy Graham Institute uh, or Billy Graham Center. So looking forward to hearing a little bit about that, but just knowing that you're kind of newer to the park world, park family, could you just yeah. kind of share a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of where you come from, how you, uh, what's your kind of journey into ministry into here? Absolutely. So I'm originally from Tennessee um, and it's always funny, especially now living in the Midwest, they're like, where are you from? Because you're not from here, and so uh, you know, always have to always have to give the background. Which is so in, it really is so interesting is that I mean, now I'm I'm approaching forty, and so I've I've lived longer almost outside of Tennessee, you know, kind of Tennessee than I than I did in it. But uh, but that that's where I was born and raised, and I, uh, my my folks they were believers, but it was my mom who was the spiritual leader. Of the family, so my dad, he was what we would probably call a nominal Christian. Uh, he he would come, but he um, but he really wasn't engaged, really wasn't involved. So it was really my mom that I would say cultivated this this spiritual at least awareness uh, to to God to the church uh, through my upbringing. And so I came to faith in Christ at the age of eight. And that really was that that was really a defining moment for me because I always there was times when I was in high school or college, I would always look back to that evening and, and, and I would tell myself that's when I put my faith and trust in Jesus. And so um, and that was that that was the night. It was a Sunday evening. That was the night that my life was transformed by the gospel. And uh, so I always tell people, too, in terms of my journey and my story is that when I was 11, um, you know, I had this kind of almost, well, I, w- I would call it a spiritual encounter, uh, with, with the Lord at a, at a children's camp. And there I, I would say that the spirit of God opened up my eyes to really understanding another dimension of what it truly meant to follow Jesus. And so, uh, really engaging his word in, um, letting the word speak. And so I tell you, and I really do, I still have like little notebooks from when I was like 11 and 12 in my devotional time and what, what the Lord would be teaching me. And I think it was at that moment when I look back, at least I'm like, well, God was preparing me for ministry because I would always have some points so many times, just three points. So, um, and I was like, that's a good, that's a good Southern preacher there has three points, never had a poem because I wasn't into that, but but yeah, so God just got a hold of my heart. And then when I was uh, 15, I really sensed this call to ministry. Didn't know what that meant other than I was going to be serving the Lord uh, in the local church somewhere doing something. And that's um, that, that's kind of like my, my early kind of childhood 
uh, teenage years, and and then from there I went to college, seminary, and then kind of the rest is is history. But definitely been serving the local church since I was seventeen years old in various capacities. Yeah, oh, good stuff. And you you preached your first sermon at fifteen, right? Is that right? I did. I did. Um, my first sermon was called "Are You in the Big Fish?" and it was it was obviously in Jonah. And I don't know, you know, people who uh, were believers at that, mo- you know, at that point, it was in the 90s. Uh, there was a there was a band called FFH, Far From Home, and they they had a song entitled, Are You In The Big Fish? And so uh, I had friends who did like, you know, some dance moves to it. Like I, I was, you know, I was contemporary before contemporary truly existed. No, I, yeah. uh, but no, it, it was pretty, it was pretty funny. That was my first sermon. Uh it was a 45 minute sermon. So I was long winded at the very beginning. So I've, I've been true to my, you know, true to my, uh, uh, initial, initial sermon at least. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, great stuff. Great stuff. That's cool. man. it's cool to be able to look back and see all those things along the way. I look back at what I was doing when I was 15 and preaching a sermon was like the farthest thing from my, my general activity. So, um, Man, it's cool. Your story is the kind of story I hope for when I think of my kids, you know, um, so so good stuff. Uh, so you also you work with uh, I mean, you've been in ministry for a long time, like you're saying. But right now, currently, part of your role is you work with the Billy Graham Center, a co-director over there, Wheaton College. Could you just share a little bit about what that is and the kind of work that you're doing there? Yeah. So the so the Billy Graham Center was was started by Billy Graham himself in 1980. And what he envisioned was the center becoming a hub that would be an equipping hub and a training hub for pastors and church leaders for greater gospel impact. So, so really uh, an evangelistic um, kind of impulse of really equipping and training uh, church leaders to truly engage in the discipline of, of evangelism. And so, so that's why I was started. Uh, what we do and even what I do uh, is, a, is a lot, really, uh, because my boss, Ed Stetzer, who's the executive director, he's involved in a lot. So therefore, uh, by, by, via him, we, we're always busy. But we engage in research uh, of what's going on in the, you know, kind of in, in culture and the church. Uh, we uh, also engage in conferences, uh, whether it's we're speaking at them or we're hosting our own. Like we have a, a big conference every year called Amplify, which is our kind of outreach leadership uh, uh, conference that uh, we have hundreds of church leaders and pastors come through. Uh, we work with uh, denominations and networks, uh, whether it's in church pl- in the church planning realm, rural ministry. Um, we also have a Institute for Prison Ministry. So we're working with church leaders to engage our, our prisons and those who are incarcerated. So uh, we have the glow. Yeah. So we, ha- we have a lot of different things that we are engaged in and have a lot of just incredible uh, leaders and thinkers that are engaging in these realms. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. It is. It's uh, a lot of beneficial a lot of helpful content. I know that you guys uh, pump out in different ways. So, so thank you for the work you're doing yeah. there. Appreciate um, that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. With that, let, let's go ahead and jump into uh, sermon recap from this past weekend. So, you preached at near North Lincoln Park, in the center region, yeah. uh, Book of Acts, chapter sixteen, verses sixteen to twenty-four. Uh, can, can you just give us a quick recap of your sermon? Yeah. So, um, and this is even tied into even the first message that I preached with with Lydia. 
So, I mean, really in Acts 16, there, there are three stories really uh, about Paul engaging people that are lost or unbelievers or far from Jesus, however you want to describe, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, you just don't need to refer to people as lost. That's really demeaning. You need to, you need to say that they're far from Jesus. So however we want to say it, these people did not know Jesus and Paul is going to engage them. And one of the things that I really did want to make sure that I brought out in, in both of these sermons is the fact that even though we even have Lydia, who is a worshiper of God, so she's a Gentile, uh, but she is a proselyte where she's kind of in some sense converted to, you know, uh, Judaism, or at least uh, she believes like the Jews. So she's worshiping God. So she she's seeking God, but but she doesn't know the gospel. And so the gospel is actually going to seek her out. So what I want people to really realize is that, you know, man does not find God. God finds man. And so as a result, we're all hiders by our very nature. And so I wanted to kind of lift that out of the text that we're all hiding and we're all, we are all at various stages in our hiding if we don't know Jesus. So Lydia, I wanted to kind of really draw out that some people are ready to be found because she's a worshiper of God. She has uh, she obviously uh, understands uh, to a degree uh, the God of the Hebrew scriptures uh, just because of where she's at in her stage of life. And then we see the slave girl. Uh, she is possessed by a, a spirit of divination, uh, future telling. So she's not I mean, she's not looking for Jesus. She's not looking for God. I mean, she's she's enslaved spiritually. And so that's where I wanted to to draw out that there are some people who need to be freed from their enslavement to some form of sin in order to be found by Jesus. And so, um, so, the, so that's kind of the, the kind of the big idea that I wanted to kind of flesh out and, and more specifically with the enslaved girl, I, I kind of just wanted to walk through the passage and just see it unfold and just see where she was enslaved. And so she's enslaved spiritually by the spirit. She's also enslaved socially by these business owners. And in her enslavement, her enslavement prevents her from even being aware as Lydia was. And so uh, now what is interesting is even though she's unaware, the spirit is aware of who Paul and Silas are. Uh, and we see those, you know, we see that element too, even in the gospels, the, the demonic world, the, you know, the, the, the dark spiritual world, Satan himself knows Jesus and knows who he is, knows that he is the king of the cosmos. So, so the spirit's aware, but like I said, this, this little girl has, I mean, she's being controlled by the spirit. So she has really no idea what's going on other than what the spirit's doing, the, the demonic spirit is doing in her. But that's where, you know, that's where we see Paul. He, he gets kind of annoyed by this spirit. And, he, and, and this is another thing that I really want to make sure that I, I stress because it's so impactful for me is that that Paul was annoyed by the spirit, not the girl. Uh, because I do think in time, you know, listen, I've been in the church all my life and Trevor, you know, being a pastor, I, this sounds bad, but it's, this is just, this is just us in our flesh and our humanity. There are people that annoy us and that perturb us. And we can probably name their names right now. Like, uh, and there's times where we want to just cast the person away because they are, they are annoying. They're disrupting, whatever it may be. But, but Paul doesn't. 
he he's not annoyed by the girl, but by the spirit that is enslaving the girl. This you know, and and what we can even say today in the twenty first century, the spirit of brokenness. You know, that's what we're really perturbed by by those people. You know, it, it is something that's broken, and and we all we all are broken. But it was but it was something that's broken that we need to dismiss, not the person themselves. So, uh, so he turns around and says, in the power of Jesus's name, I command you to come out. And so, and this is something that maybe I even, I want, when I look back on it, maybe I didn't stress it enough. I want people to realize that Paul did not free the enslaved girl. Jesus did. You you know, Paul just, he, he, he invokes the name of Jesus. So, so when, when it comes to, you, you know, us and us engaging in ministry, uh, today and freeing those who may need to be uh, freeing those who need to be found. It's not us that's doing the freeing. Uh, we're just the conduit for Jesus to do the freeing. And so I just want to make sure I stress that point too. Is that uh, you, you know when we are operating in the the mission and the ministry of Jesus, even when we are engaging in ministry to to free whether it's you know those in sex trafficking uh, whether it's those who are enslaved to an addiction we are doing so in the name of Jesus so so we're not actually the one that has the power to do it we're just the conduit for the power of Jesus to flow through us to do it yeah 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 that's good yeah man a couple of points there are good that the whole making the distinction between the spirit and the and the person and like who Paul is annoyed with that um, yeah, that's, that's helpful. And, uh, and even the thought that Jesus is the one doing the freeing. Yeah. Good stuff. You shared something right at the beginning of the sermon that, that I thought was just, uh, you made a connection between a few different passages that, that got to, uh, kind of our role and understanding evangelism in a way that's a little bit different than, than what we typically might. I think you started with Psalm 19. Could you run through that real quick? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so especially working at, and evangelism institution, you know, we hopefully we're passionate about evangelism, but you, you know, like even the week before I talked about how some people have objections, right? And, and we, we know all of those objections, like oh, we don't need to do it or it's too hard or mm-hmm. I've never seen anybody do it well, whatever it may be. But, but for me, one of the things that I have really, um, come to understand when it comes to evangelism and evangelism even in my own life is how the fall the the, the fall of Adam and Eve and in our brokenness really damages our evangelistic impulse notice I said damage damages it because it doesn't do away with it because we all have this natural impulse to be evangelists why because in Psalm 19 you know even creation, by its very nature, has this evangelistic impulse to glorify its creator. And so, and, and, and that's where I'm like, Jesus picks up on that in Luke 19, that if we don't pray, if humans don't praise God, the rocks will cry out. If we don't praise Jesus, the rocks will cry out because creation knows who's its creator. Uh, and then Paul picks up on that in Romans 1 in terms of just by the very nature of creation, it, do, it does proclaim, it does declare at least that there is a God. So, so once again, you know, you have this idea that creation has this evangelistic impulse by its very nature. So, I mean, for me, it would only stand to reason that if, that if we go back to Genesis 1, and we see that on day six, God creates his prized creation, mankind, in his image. 
And and what is that all about? Well, the whole idea of image and in 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 kind of my mission circles, I always talk about how that idea of image is like this mirror that God places mankind in um, in create well, in in the created order to reflect his glory, his characteristics, his attributes, his nature, and thereby reflect his kingdom. And so, so therefore, you know, we are, we are, as human beings, we have been created to be the ones who declare the authority, the glory, uh, the kingship of God in all spheres of life. Well, so what happened? Well, sin happened. That's what happened. And if you just kind of look at, you know, Genesis 3, and this is kind of where just walking through that passage will give us why even today there is, you know, there are obstacles that we have to overcome to be, you know, to become the evangelist that God has innately put within us as image bearers. And that one is just seduction, you know, and this is where like when you look at, you know, when, when you particularly look at Eve there at the tree, just engaging the serpent, you know, here's what I would always say is that, okay, after the first sentence, you need to be walking away. Like, you know, did God really say like, so now you, you, what, what the serpent is doing is, is trying to get you to, to doubt God, right? Uh, to, do you really think God's really good? I mean, it, you know, so, so, but she continues that dialogue. So that's where for, for me, like this idea of temptation today is that temptation isn't a sin, but if we stay around temptation long enough and, and we don't dismiss it, um, and we don't turn, you know, kind of in some sense, turn away from temptation, then it will seduce us. And so, and I think that, 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 that could actually play out in a host of ways, but it, one, one I would say today is distraction. How distracted are we as people in a, in the 21st century by just, I, I mean, uh, devices by work and, and, and again, these things aren't bad. See, again, these things are not bad in and of themselves. So just Eve talking to the serpent was not sin, but she was seduced by what was happening. So so that's that's one. The second is sin itself. So so actually, as she partakes of the forbidden tree um, eaten from it uh, and then turns to Adam and give you know, when we are when we are engaging willfully in sin, we are not going to proclaim the glory and the goodness of King Jesus. Just not going to do it. Um, and then the the third thing is shame. Um, so as they as they realize their condition now that they have no clothes on, uh, they are ashamed and they hide. And that that's part of where I think today, I really do think in the church today, one of the biggest things that we're going to have to overcome is this idea of shame, Uh, shame in what we're doing, uh, shame in how we think we, you know, uh, who we think we are, uh, because shame and identity are attached to one another. And so if your identity isn't rooted in Jesus, although you are a believer, you're not going, you're not going to proclaim something that you are not identified with. And so if you're not identifying with Jesus and if you're not finding your security, your identity, who you are in Jesus, you're not going to tell others about him because you are ashamed. And so uh, so that that's a big thing I think we have to overcome today. And then the last is strife. And again, if I had to, you know, if I had to pinpoint where the church is, like when I say corporately and even believers individually, that's part of the church. If you think about our relationships today, uh, they're not really healthy. 
Um, and unhealthy relationships and divisive relationships actually form an obstacle to proclaiming the whole relationship that we should have with Jesus. So, um, and then in churches, many churches, I mean, especially coming, coming, well, I say out of COVID, which we're not out of it yet. But if you look at all of the, the, the fights in the church over the last 15 to 18 months over mask and politics and, you know, policies and all of that, the church isn't going to evangelize when they're fighting with each other about masks. And so, so those are the four obstacles that, that for me, I see embedded right there in Genesis three, that prevent, that prevents us from doing the very thing that we were created to do in proclaiming and declaring the glory and the goodness of God. Yeah. 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 That's good. Wow. They, they damaged the evangelistic impulse that like is hardwired into us and but having that awareness helps us to kind of almost like interrogate our own lives, examine our own lives and see where those things are affecting us and, and how yeah. we can work through those. Um, yeah. For the sake of the glory of God and in the good of ourselves yeah. and around us. Well, and just to flesh out just even the, you know, damaging the evangelistic impulse. If we look at our life now, again, uh, you know, just reminding people about how I define evangelism is inviting people into the good news story of King Jesus. That, that's, that, that's the kind of the definition that I like to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about our lives, uh, we are evangelists. Again, we're, we're, I think it's wired. It's hardwired in humanity. Mm-hmm. But if you think about like a good restaurant that we ate at and you you like, uh, like even the fact that we want to write reviews, we live in a review centric world. And so we want to write reviews because we're either saying, don't go and be part of that story or, hey, man, this is the this is the best product. This is the best steak that you will ever have. It will melt in your mouth. What are we doing? We are declaring the the, the weight of that product or that that thing that we have consumed. Right. So if we are consumers of, you know, and some when I say consumers that uh, are consuming the glory of God, you know, think about it. That if we're basking in the glory of God, then, then we're going to tell people about it because why? Whatever we bask in and whatever, you know, is meaningful and worshipful to us, we have this natural impulse. We've got to tell somebody. Hey, we want to invite you into this movies. Hey, Black Widow is an amazing movie. I think you need to come with me. I'll see it again. I mean, so that's just we are hardwired for that. But but again, the the damaged part is the fact that sin has damaged the very thing we were created to evangelize for. Yeah, yeah, man, that's that's such good stuff. That's rich. Um, Man, and this is just the recap. So, <laughs> yeah, three. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's go ahead and, and shift gears a little bit. Um, so, plenty, plenty to talk about in terms of just ex- like kind of extrapolating what was in the sermon itself. But, but what got cut? What were some of the things that you wanted to get to um, but didn't have a chance to? Um, well, as you know, Trevor, I mean, we, we do a lot of cutting, don't we? Uh, yeah. you, you know, and you know, my wife will always tell me you didn't cut enough, and I'm like, ah. You know, and, and I think this is part of, you know, this is part of the challenge of the 21st century preacher, right, is you only have 30 to 35 minutes and there's so much that that really the spirit taught you. Right. Yeah. And you just can't get to all of it. So, uh, you know, a couple of things that I would say uh, really got cut uh, in, in almost every service, with the exception of one. One thing that did get cut was 
was an illustration. And sometimes I hate cutting illustrations because the way I use, I typically try to use illustrations are either via movies or my own life or, you know, something that I've, I've been, I've engaged in, but mm -hmm. uh, under the first point where I was talking about living and operating in the power of Jesus, uh, I cut the illustration where the previous week, as I think uh, I, I shared with the church, we were on vacation and we actually went to Universal Studios one day, and during our Universal experience, I went to ride the ride, uh, Revenge of the Mummy. Um, and so, as I'm, you know, as I'm waiting in line, we kind of get towards the, the the front, and the 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 girl who was working there, she told me that I needed to take off my hat and I needed to put it in my shirt, and I said, put it like. I'm like a grown man. I've, I've been to so many theme parks in my life and I've, I've worn hats pretty much a lot of the times. And I've never had anybody tell me to take my hat off and put it in my shirt. Now I've had two people say, take your hat off and you can hold it, but not in my shirt. So, so I'm like, okay. And so we get on, we, we actually are now being seated in the roller coaster and they say, and I actually have my hat in my hand. Literally, I'm like, I'm not putting it in my shirt. Like I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not submitting to authority. So I, I, I'm not honoring Jesus, but, but I have my hat in my hand and the, and the worker, the other worker said, Hey, you need to put your hat in your shirt. And I'm like, you can, they're like, you will not be able to ride this ride unless you have your hat in your shirt. So I have to stretch out my shirt. I've got to tuck my hat in and I actually had pictures of this. So I actually was planning on sharing it. So I had a picture out in front of the Revenge of the Mummy. And then I had a picture of me in the roller coaster looking like I was pregnant because I have now stuffed my hat in my shirt. So the whole illustration of that is that you have to, we have to live in the power and we have to live and operate in the power of Jesus if we want to experience the power of Jesus. And I think what happens many times in the church is that we want to use Jesus any way we want, want to use him, but we will not experience the power of Jesus. And so we might be around Jesus who we, we, we might see, you know, but if I really wanted to experience the roller coaster, I actually had to put something inside of me. And I think that as the church, if we really want to experience the power of Jesus, we have to live in that. And so, and here's the other thing that got cut with that is because people would want to say, well, how do we live and operate in the power of Jesus? Um, and so, and this is the other part that got cut. So here's how we live and operate in the power of Jesus. Uh, number one, you have to surrender and submit to his authority. Listen, like, like going back to that roller coaster, if I didn't submit to those who were in authority, I was not going to ride that ride. <laughs> so, so when it comes to, if we're going to live and operate in the power of Jesus, we must surrender and submit to his authority. And again, this is where believers get tripped up is that, Hey, Jesus saved me. I'm saved. I go to church and do all this. But let me ask you in every sphere of your life, in every area of your life, every day of your life, are you surrendering and submitting to the authority of King Jesus and what he has revealed in his scripture to you? So, so that would be one. The, the, the second part would be if we're going to live and operate in the power of Jesus, we cannot be coercive towards others. Mm -hmm. See, this is a thing that we live in a day and age. We, 
we're we're kind of coerced to believe in things like we're coerced by politics. You need, you know, okay, well, uh, and and when you look at Jesus, he never coerced anybody to believe what he was saying. Never. Mm-hmm. You cannot find it. But what he did do is that he loved people to get them to the place of belief. And so, uh, and that love could be demonstrated in healing. Um, that love could be demonstrated in feeding. That love could be demonstrated in listening because Jesus was a great listener. Uh, you, you know, so he listened way more than he talked. Yeah. So, but he never, he never coerced anybody to believe what he was saying or who he was. Um, which leads to uh, the third point was if we're going to live and operate in the power of Jesus, we must seek to elevate and bless those that God has placed around us. See, and this, again, this, this goes contrary to our culture because we want to live for our own blessing and our own good. We want to make sure that we're elevated. Right. And so Jesus, he actually, uh, he actually lowered himself in order to elevate others. Yeah. Right. So that's what Philippians two is all about, is that he humbled himself and he became a servant in order to elevate us in the eyes of God. And so if we're and so going back to living and operating in the power of the spirit, if we're going to do that as a church, if we're going to do that as believers. We must surrender. We must love and we must seek to bless and elevate. And that's how we and again, that's that's what Paul was doing, living under the authority of King Jesus uh, he's not coercing the, the girl or anybody. Now he is coercing the spirit in the name of Jesus, but he's doing so to seek and to elevate the girl. So by freeing her from that spiritual enslavement. So, so that, that, that's what got cut, um, you know, um, in the message. Yeah, no, that's good. It makes me uh, think in that last one, uh, seeking to, to elevate and bless those around us, just kind of teasing that out a little bit. Is that the sort of thing where you'd almost just kind of like walk through almost like the different roles in your life. I'm thinking like a seven habits of highly effective people, like walking through the different roles in your life and how you want to engage, like as a father, husband, as a mother, wife, as a friend, kind of as an employee and looking through each one of those spheres, almost like who, who am I, who am I supposed to bless and elevate in, in this sphere? Is that, is that kind of how you walk through teasing that out? Yeah, I mean that. That's I mean that's a really good point, Trevor. Is that yeah? You're you're constantly thinking of wherever you are in, what, you know, like home. This is something that uh, you know that God has brought conviction in my own life years ago. Like my wife and I, we just celebrated 18 years Monday, oh, and yeah. I actually, I actually had to learn, uh, and, and the Spirit had to teach me. But just like unloading the dishwasher. That is a way that I seek to bless my wife. And by doing so, it's lowering me because I, in this, in the sense of, I don't like unloading the dishwasher, you, you know, like that is not something I get up every morning and go, I can't wait to unload the dishwasher. But, but it was a way for me to, to, to serve her, to bless her. Uh, because, and if you think about it and just to, I mean, just in some sense, kind of even making the point of enslavement, it, like, um, Think about in the family now. Again, this is this is off the cuff, so uh, we'll, we'll see how good it is after the end. But 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 here's the way my wife is wired, and I'm not saying that every you know wife a woman is wired this way. But my wife is wired to serve her family. 
I mean, she's constantly taking care of the kids. She's constantly doing something, you know, for the house, whether it's grocery shopping or, you know, folding clothes, doing laundry. And so if you think about it, and, and so this might be a good illustration in the sense of enslavement. My wife is enslaved to serve her family in a good way. But as the husband and as the as the person who is called to be the spiritual leader, that actually means that I, particularly in the vein of the gospel, that actually means that I take upon the, the role of the servant and go, where can I free my wife to bless her? Right. And so if you so if you take that kind of illustration in just the house, go ahead and transmit it to the city for park. Where is the city so enslaved that actually prevents them from, you know, from from flourishing? Because here's the thing about my wife. She would say that she loves that, but it does prevent her from doing things that she would, you know, that that she also loves doing. Um, But but where in the city is the city enslaved where the church could go? You know what? we, We need we need to minister in that area to free people so that they, so that the city might flourish even, even more in the name of Jesus. So, um, so that, that could be, again, that, that was right off the cuff. I don't know how good that is, but, uh, but, but it, but it at least applies to, you know, your, your house in the city. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's round this out here with a listener question as we draw near to the close. So this is what we have for, for this week. Um, yeah, kind of a question around faith and in doubt. Uh, so as a person of faith, what should I do with doubt? Here's what I would say as a person of faith about doubt. Now, there, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. So I think we have to make sure that that is a, a distinction that when you are doubting, doubting is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubting, you're wrestling with, okay, you know, regardless of what it might be like. So for instance, pain and suffering. Pain and suffering comes in our life and we might start doubting that God is good. We might start doubting that God is in control. But that doesn't mean that we we, we don't believe that God is uh, not good or that God is not in control. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so that's where I would say lean into the discomfort of doubt. Mm-hmm. And then as as you as you lean into the discomfort, ask the Lord to reveal himself to you in the place of doubt. Uh, so, so that's what I would say, you know, kind of say there is, is doubt is a healthy place. Like, so for instance, like we we always uh, give Thomas, which was one of the disciples of Jesus, a bad name because we call him doubting Thomas. Mm -hmm. Like, so, so he did not, uh, you know, he, he did not have this unbelief that Jesus had, had, you know, you know, uh, uh, been raised from the dead. He just, he's like, I got to see it. (laughs) And so now Jesus showed him his his hands and his side and like thomas believed you know like oh my gosh my lord and my god like so he 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 saw it um you know and so sometimes jesus will will reveal himself to you in those times of doubt um but but maybe not necessarily like thomas you know like that was pretty cool i mean that would have been pretty cool you know in our seasons of doubt where jesus comes up you know comes to us physically and goes here let me go ahead and tell you i'll write it down for you and i'll give you the piece of paper so that you can frame it in your office like that would be cool but that just doesn't right. happen so so i i would just say lean into the doubt those seasons are going to come right. um you know but but in that doubt so here's the thing that i would say um 
And, and, and this just came, came to my mind just as, as an example. I'm watching, I'm watching this series called Alone right now that's on the History Channel. And it's so amazing because, like, the only way you get on that show is if you actually have survival, exp- you know, experience. Like, you have to be, like, an expert in survival. They wouldn't let me on the show. Like, so, uh, that I would be, I, even, yeah, I would not be one, even if I wanted to go on the show, they wouldn't let me. You have to be a survival expert. But it's so interesting that, you know, the, the experiences that, that many of these contestants have where they start doubting themselves, you know, I can't get food or I, you know, but, but it, but it's not, it's not that they don't believe they're doubting because of their experiences, their present experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what they have to do is they have to go back to their expertise that they do know how to gain food. They do know how to survive. So they have to reach back to to what they do know in order to sustain them in the present. So that's how doubt works for us. Is that yes, there's going to be moments in our life where we are depressed or we're hit you're hitting a trough and we're just doubting whatever it may be. Like I said, the goodness of God, uh the sovereignty of God, uh maybe even our salvation, whatever it may be. Yeah. And so what we have to do at those those present moments of doubt, we've got to reach back to the past moments of truth of what we do know. And that's where we start declaring the truth of God. That's where we start declaring the good news of King Jesus. That's where we start declaring the facts of what we do know and what we have been taught. And it's that declaration in the present doubt that sustains us for the, the future. So, so that's what I would say about doubt. Lean into it, but, but reach back uh, to anchor yourself to truth, to the good news of King Jesus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that actually reminds me of what you even said at the beginning, looking back at you've got these like mile markers, even early in your life, like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, eight years old being a defining moment there, um, coming to faith in Jesus. Yeah. Having that spiritual encounter and even those journals and things from when you're 11 and then uh, call the ministry around 15. Those are things that you can. Uh, and I have things like that, too, that you can you just like they stick with you. Um, and yeah, it's helpful to to go back to those in the midst of. Um, yeah, seasons of doubt or or a, a deeper sadness. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Josh, it's been great having you. Thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate it, Trevor. It's definitely an honor and a privilege. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, just a quick heads up. We're going to be taking a pause here throughout the rest of August. Thanks so much for joining us over the summer. We hope you've enjoyed the episodes and we'll see you again soon this fall. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>